First John, chapter two, verses one and two. How many of you guys have been with us through this uh, epistle of first John the last few weeks? Okay, Uh, then you guys can help out the other folks when we quiz you here and see if you can finish these sentences. There's four reasons. Excuse me. I seem to have something in my throat. Four reasons that we have seen explicitly that John through the Holy Spirit through John is writing this epistle. You guys remember the first one, chapter one, verse four, you find it He says, I'm writing these this that you might be filled with joy, right? That your joy might be full. Anyone here opposed to having being filled with joy? Nobody's thinking, I've got plenty of joy already. I don't need any more of your stinking joy. No one? Well, then, read this book. Good. That's how it works, by the way. Chapter 2, verse 26, we see another. Yes, I know I skipped over one. We'll come back to that. Chapter 2, verse 26. He says, we're writing this that you might be able to fend off deception. You see that? Chapter 2, verse 26. I'm writing this that you might be able to fend off deception. Anyone opposed to being able to fend off deception? No one? No one thinking, hey, when the wolves come in sheep's clothing, I don't want to be prepared. When that wolf comes, I want to look deep in his eyes and see my reflection and say, ooh, a lamb chop. I mean, how bad could it be? No one, no one's opposed to being able to fend off deception. Okay, then read this book. Chapter 5, verse 13. You can turn there if you want. He says, we're writing this that you might have a firm assurance of your salvation. Is anyone opposed to having a firm assurance of your salvation? No one's thinking, no, I prefer to not really know that I'm saved. I want to wait until judgment day to find that out. I like surprises. No. No one opposed to firm assurance. Then read this book. Okay. Well, there is one that we skipped. Chapter two, verse one. And that is our text this morning. John writes, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. We've already seen the end of chapter one. John does not mean that we can be sinless. But we certainly can sin less. Is anyone opposed to sinning less? No one thinking, yeah, I just want to keep on sinning and enjoying all the benefits that come from it. You know, broken families. Broken marriages. Alimony. Venereal diseases. Cirrhosis of the liver. Paranoia. Nervous breakdowns. Constant guilt. I just can't get enough of that stuff. No one? If no one's opposed to sinning less, then read this book. Again, I challenge you to read through it at least once a week. Get stewed in it. Let the Lord minister to you from it. I'm I'm already noticing a lot more people coming up and saying, the Lord's doing something here. And I think it's not so much a change in what's happening up here, but what's happening out there. People reading and and being ready and looking for what the Lord wants to do in their lives. Okay, so we're in chapter 2, verse 1. John writes, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. 
off the top, I think it's really important to notice those first few words. Do you notice that verse 1 does not read like a note from a stern taskmaster? Notice it does not read, Oh, you wretched losers, these things I write so that you may not sin. No, actually it says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. The word little children there is technion. In the New Testament, it's used as a kindly address by teachers to their disciples. You guys see the, the love, the affection, the tenderness in these words. See, when a teacher really loves his students, he takes ownership of them with his words. He gives them sometimes affectionate names, right? Jesus did that with Peter. So I'm going to call you rock. James and John, who wanted to call down thunder, So I'm going to call you guys the sons of thunder. Right? When a teacher really loves his students, he, he takes ownership of them. When I was back in Orlando with the youth group, Lisa and I began to, somewhere along the line, call the, the high schoolers our little chickens. Say, okay, chickens, turn your Bibles to. And eventually that somehow transmogrified. I think that's a word. Into chicklets. Okay, little chicklets. And one of the coolest gifts I've ever gotten was when we were leaving, uh, these kids got, got me an iPod. This was back when iPods were like, you know, nobody had them. It's pretty cool. And on the back, they inscribed us uh, to Doug from your chicklets. Aww. Let's all say it together. Aww. There's a, a tender teaching teacher-student relationship, uh, a willing identification, right? An ownership that John has with the reader. And who's the reader? You guys, right? An ownership that changes, for me, the tone of this verse from the very get-go. You read chapter, you read verse 1, and you're like, I'm writing that you might not sin. And sometimes we want to hear it like this, like there's a guy with bifocals looking down at you with a bony finger. Little children, quit sinning. But no, it says, my little children, I'm writing to help you to be free from sin. He's in our corner. He's rooting us on. I think John's writing this because he says, look, I know what it does to marriages. I know what sin does to families. I know what sin does to livers, to minds, to souls. John says, Little children, my beloved ones, I'm writing this that you might not sin. Now, this might be a really good place for us to review some of the themes that we've discovered already in this book. No time to go into them in depth, but I think it'll help to get you guys up to speed. If, uh, if you'd like, you can go online and, and catch up with us. But there's a few themes that we've already seen besides the, the four uh, stated uh, reasons that that john writes the holy spirit writes through john the first one look at chapter one verses three and four he's basically saying in chapter one verses three and four look you can be filled with joy joy is different than happiness right it's not dependent upon your circumstance you can be filled with joy and what he says we discovered in verse three the key to that is what fellowship with god becoming filled with with joy has to do with fellowship with God. 
Um, and that's great. And it's wonderful. But then we saw last week that there's a problem that comes in. If we want to have fellowship with God and therefore live a joyful, abundant life that Jesus promised. The problem is that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Right? He says, look, you can't walk in darkness and fellowship with God who is light. It's just not possible. But we saw last week, encouragingly, he says, look, there's a solution to that problem, too. Just walk in the light as he is in the light. And what we discovered was that really boils down to this word called confession. Homo legeo. To say the same thing as. To say the same thing that God says about our sin we say the same thing that he says, calling it what it is. And we talked a lot about this last week, um, calling it specifically what it is. Dragging our sin, if you will, into the light, like it's like a fungus. It can't grow in the darkness. It can grow in the darkness, but we drag it into the light. Um, it's a glorious solution. Again, if you don't have this verse memorized, first John chapter one, verse nine Probably would be the place I would start if I was going to uh, begin memorizing scripture. That made it sound like I haven't. Um, it's a great place to start memorizing scripture. If we confess that is homo legale, I'll say the same thing as God about our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. <clears throat> we saw that last week. That's the same word that we get the word catharize. That is the ongoing removal from outside ourselves of the poison of sin. He's faithful and just to cleanse us, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, really good news. Joy comes from fellowship with God. That fellowship is so often broken uh, when we do not walk in the light. The, The solution to that is to confess, to continually walk with no secrets, walk in the light. Okay, really great stuff. Now, that presents a new potential for misunderstanding, a new potential problem. And I don't know if any of you have thought of it as you've been reading through this book. But if you leave off where we left off on Sunday at the end of chapter one, it's possible that you could begin to think this way. If all I have to do is to walk in fellowship with God and, and to have joy is to confess. And that when I confess, his forgiveness is assured and constantly available, which all of that's true, by the way, then sweet. It's a free pass. A get out of guilt free card. Maybe you've been tempted to think that way. Maybe you come to the conclusion, wait, I guess rather than sin less, I should just confess more. Y'all, that's goofy. It reminds me of a T-shirt I've seen. I don't know if you guys have seen this. It goes something like this. Drinking problem? I don't have a drinking problem. I drink. I get drunk. I fall down. No problem. Classy T-shirt. Hey, if you're a single guy... I challenge you to wear that on your first date in the interest of full disclosure, right? Listen, if we're not careful, that can be our attitude about sin, right? Sin problem? I don't have a sin problem. I sin. I fall down. I confess. 
No problem. Please, please don't forget that when we sin and fall down, there's always fall out. There's always fall out. Even though you can and will be forgiven, made brand new in the eyes of God, having fellowship with him, there's still always fall out, right? You can't, uh, Galatians says you can't plant corn and expect something else to come up. You can't plant sin and expect for there to be no consequences. When we fall down, there's always fall out in our own lives, in our kids' lives, in those around us. And that's a problem. So that's why chapter two, verse one, John says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. You see, he says, look, I didn't write chapter one so that you could sin more, smarter, guilt free. No, just the opposite. My precious little ones. I wrote it that you may not sin. Now, you may ask, okay, well, then how does that work? How does confession make me sin less? Well, does anyone here have a hard time keeping your car clean besides me? A few of you? Okay. Um, You go through a super busy time in your life, and it looks more like a repository for wrappers, cans, coffee mugs, fast food bags, floorboard of a car. In the, than the floorboard of a car? No? Just me? Okay. Um, any spouses looking at each other, pointing? Okay. If you're like me and you've had that, you have that experience. Have you ever had your car? Have you ever spent taking the time to have your car detailed? Uh, you try it yourself and then you call in a professional. After you have your car detailed, what's the last thing you want to do? Mess it up. I don't know anyone who finishes detailing a car and then says, sweet, a brand new squeaky clean canvas to hold my garbage. See, for me, and again, I'm confessing here. That's the one time when my car will actually be clean for weeks. Okay, maybe days, weeks, weeks on end. Because that's when I'll say, okay. You know, this is, this is easier. I'll just take my cup out when I leave. But then once it starts to pile up, right, it's not so motivating to keep it clean. You guys get it? Yes, confession is a huge key uh, to cleanse, right? But it's not that we are free to sin. It's supposed to be to help us keep free from sin. That's why he says, chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal, guys. That's the target. That's exactly what we should be shooting for. You know, when you before you were saved, there were definitely certain sins, maybe all of them that you could not help but doing. Right. But now, hate to break it to you. If you've been redeemed, if you've given your life to him, you're not sinning because you have to. You're sinning because you want to. I say that to myself as well. That's the goal. That's the target. But just so you know, we, we, we saw the last two verses in chapter one say this. And then the very he doesn't even finish the verse without John saying basically, OK, but I know you're going to sin. 
It says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he's saying, look, the goal is to keep your proverbial car clean. That's what you should be striving to do. But I've seen your car. He says, when that happens, you have, it says, an advocate with the Father. That word advocate, familiar word to most of us, it's parakletos. It's the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit. Um, It means one that is called alongside to help. In this context, it means a defense lawyer. In the Blue Letter Bible, it reads, one who pleads another's cause before a judge. One who is a counsel for the defense. Y'all, John says, if we sin, we have the greatest Think about it. Defense lawyer in the universe on retainer. The Bible indicates that all of our secret sins, the thing that you think no one else could ever know about, are open scandal in heaven. If you're a believer, a born again child of God, this is what that courtroom scene looks like. You guys ready? Imagine this with me. You hear a voice, all rise for the honorable judge, almighty God. And God, who is light, in him there is no darkness at all, enters the room. And he's seated in the judgment seat. And across the courtroom, you see your accuser, Satan. Revelation 12.10 says that he is the accuser of the brethren, He accuses us day and night, and he relishes his role. And we've given him plenty to work with. I mean, in this courtroom scene, the the sin that you did yesterday or today, it's right out there in the open. Satan has, has accused. He's come to the judge to declare you guilty. And the problem is he's right. The charges are true, and right now, before we know anything else, it looks like you're toast. But who's your defense lawyer? Jesus. That's a good answer, by the way, in general. Jesus. Okay? Who's your defense lawyer? Jesus. And it says the righteous. Look at the end of verse 1. Jesus Christ, the righteous. That word means innocent, faultless, guiltless. It's used of him whose way of thinking, feeling, and acting is wholly conformed to the will of God and who therefore needs no rectification in the heart or life. Your defense lawyer, if you're a Christian, if you've given your life to him, your defense lawyer is completely guiltless. We have, every state has a bar exam, right? you want to practice law in the state of Florida, you have to pass the bar exam. Well, imagine what the bar exam looks like to practice law in heaven. A perfect life. I mean, any lawyer defending you before a holy judge who is light in, in this in the judge, there is no darkness at all. Any lawyer that would defend you before him must himself be pure. Right. You don't you don't want some lawyer who's got some his own problems with the law. You don't want me as your lawyer. Okay. 
So Satan has you. It appears dead to rights. He's got you red-handed. But there's still a glimmer of hope because you've got Jesus Christ, the righteous, as your advocate. So the judge repeats the charges against you. He says to your advocate, Jesus, how does your client plead? Jesus stands. This is where it gets good, right? Well, Jesus says, well, your honor, he's guilty. Guilty of sin. What? Jesus goes on. As a matter of fact, I happen to know some other stuff that he's done that he's guilty of. You look at your advocate. He's like, I'm Jesus Christ, the righteous. What do you want me to say? See, in a human court of law, right, you spend many hours, thousands of dollars strategizing how to deny guilt, how to pretend like you're not guilty. In a divine court, it begins with the truth. Look, you're guilty. You're guilty of sin. Okay, so right now it doesn't look so good. Your own defense lawyer says you're guilty. Gavel comes crashing down. Verdict, guilty. Okay, next phase, uh, punishment, penalty. Judge says to the prosecutor, what penalty do you seek? The accuser says, oh, that's easy, death, right? The, the thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. So you look nervously at your advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he nods to you as if to say, no worries, let me handle this. And he proceeds to say, Judge, my response to the proposed punishment is this. I agree. Death. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, he says, look, it's already established. My, my client has sinned and your word says the wages of sin is death. So, yes, I agree. You start sweating bullets now. The gavel goes down. Sentence, death. But then the advocate says, Judge. May I approach the bench? Of course. And when he gets to the bench, your advocate says, Dad. Dad, this one belongs to me. I purchased him with my own blood. I purchased her with my own blood. And your word, Dad, says that because they belong to me, they belong to you. Look down, actually, chapter 2, verse 23, just a few verses down. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See, that's what verse 1 actually says. Did you notice that? Chapter 2, verse 1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with... Yes, he is the judge, but here he's called the Father. Awesome. Jesus has brought us into the family of the holy righteous judge. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Okay, here's the question, though. Because we're part of the family of God now, do we just get off scot-free? I mean, is it that simple? Well, if we just got off scot-free because we're part of the family of God, wouldn't that make Christianity just a good old boy network? Right? Our father would not be a righteous judge if he just lets us go. If he just winks and says, okay, yeah, you're family. 
See, we are all, after all, convicted criminals. For God to be a righteous judge, to remain righteous on the throne, someone must pay the penalty. Look at verse 2. And he, Jesus, himself, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. It's a big word, propitiation. You guys say that for me. Propitiation. Gesundheit. Sorry. Um, Propitiation, the word in the Greek is halosmos, and it means the thorough, acceptable payment of a debt. It's actually the same word that the Greeks used in the day to to mention a, a sacrifice that they would make to their to appease their gods, to appease an angry God. If you look up propitiate in Webster's, it's to gain or regain the favor or goodwill of propitiation. That big word in verse two is, listen, that which is required to get us back into fellowship with a holy righteous God. We've talked over the last couple of weeks, the word fellowship is koinonia. It means to have things together, to be in, as Pastor Joe Foch in Philadelphia says, to be in cahoots with God. Nothing better than to be right, to be in cahoots with God. Propitiation is that thing which makes that possible. And what is that thing? Verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Okay, he is the one who makes it all possible that we can actually have a sweet abiding fellowship that leads to joy no matter what our circumstances. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. So let's go back to the courtroom scene. Do you guys understand that when Jesus approaches the bench, that conversation between your advocate and a judge who is light and in him there is no darkness at all. It's not just wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's not like, yeah, he's a sinner, but he's in the family, right? No. It's like this. Father, he is guilty. She is guilty as sin. She's guilty of even more than she knows. He doesn't even have a clue how guilty he is. But Father, I have already paid. For that sin. Second Corinthians 521, very familiar verse. For he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus says to the righteous judge who happens to be his father, put it to my account. Look at look in in my account, father, and you'll see that there's more than enough to pay for that sin. And the gavel goes down. The defendant is guilty, but the sentence has been paid in full. So the sinner goes free. And yet God is still just. All because of the son's willingness to die for you. You guys remember Jesus' words on the cross? It is finished. Telistamai means paid in full. Matter of fact, it's really amazing when you think about the fact that Jesus' blood, his sacrifice on the cross, pays even more than more than covers your sin and my sin because it says, look at the end of verse 2, and he himself, Jesus himself, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole 
world. You guys want to participate this morning? All right. Um, This one's easy. You don't even have to turn anywhere. Just every time that I pause long enough to let you guys get in a word edgewise, can you guys just say the word world? I want you to notice something. John chapter 1, verse 29, excuse me. Speaking of John the Baptist, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Later, John chapter 4, verse 42. The, uh, the woman at the well, she's amazed that Jesus can read her mail. And she runs and shares with her, uh, her friends from the village. They come back, they meet Jesus, John 4, 42. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. And then, of course, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, raise your hand if you are currently living in the world. It's not a trick question. Okay? Didn't say of the world, in the world. If you're currently living in the world, you raise your hand, even if you didn't. You should have, because you are stubborn people. If you raise your hand or should have, Jesus already paid the price for your sin says right there, chapter two, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the whole world. That means then think about it. There's not one person in this room. I don't care what you've done, how vile your sin is. There's not one person who cannot be forgiven and enjoy fellowship with a holy God. There's not one person in here that cannot be forgiven if you're willing This says that he's already paid the price for every sinner in this room. That means believers and unbelievers. Okay, wait, how does that work? Well, here's the difference. Some of us have received the gift of propitiation. Some of us have made him our advocate through surrender, right? We surrender our lives to him. We surrender our sin to him. We give him the whole mangled mess and say, Lord, be my advocate, be my savior. We enter into a Lord-servant relationship, a friend-to-friend relationship, a king-servant relationship. We enter into these things, and we enter into the family of God. So some of us have actually made use of, received that propitiation, but some perhaps have refused that free gift. Or maybe you didn't, weren't aware of it up till now, or you've ignored it. If there's anyone in the room like that this morning, can I say to you, and hopefully make sense, it's pretty much established that it's never smart for anyone to defend yourself in a court of law. I mean, we have examples after example of that here on earth. But not to be offensive, but especially how dumb is it to try to defend yourself before a God who is perfect, 
who is light, in him there is not a stitch of darkness at all. Why would anyone refuse such a wonderful counselor when the enormous cost to have him on retainer he paid? See, if you are in the world, I can tell you the propitiation has already been paid for your sins. He's your propitiation for your sins, but only if you receive him. And he happens to be the only propitiation available for your sin. That's why he said out of his own lips, this advocate, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So if you haven't given your life to him, if you haven't entered into a relationship with him, I encourage you today. Otherwise, there's going to come a time when you're going to rewind to this day and say, well, I can't say the guy didn't tell me. See, he's already paid the price. How foolish it is to not enter in to a relationship with him. Okay, last point, guys. I'm not sure how many folks... Perhaps there, there are quite a few. I don't know, but I'm not sure how many folks are in that category where you haven't given your life to him. But maybe you've given your life to him, but you still deal with guilt. I mean, constantly, it just seems like the accuser of the brethren has hauled you back into court. Let me share a couple of thoughts with you. First of all, this is kind of throwback to last week. If the reason that you're constantly dealing with guilt is because you're guilty, then there's one way to deal with that. Bring it into the light. Again, you might want to get last Sunday's CD. Um, first of all, that means bring it into the light before the Lord, right? First John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, catharize us from all unrighteousness. But you say, well, I've been doing that actually since just since last week. I've been really confessing my sin, but I still feel like I'm being dragged into court all the time. Well, here's another idea. And I tried to touch on this last week as well. Maybe you need to confess your sin to one of his ambassadors here on earth with skin and bones. Maybe you need to have one of his representatives here with their ears what it is that is plaguing you and hear from their lips whom he has authorized to speak from his word. Look, it says right here, because you've just confessed that you're forgiven. Maybe that's what you need. Let me put it this way. The more that we walk in the light, meaning no secrets, the more clear, the more in the clear we'll be. Okay, so maybe that's you. Or maybe you say, well, look, I've already been doing all of that. Look, I've confessed to him and I've confessed to another and I've repented. But the accuser still keeps trying to haul me back into court for that thing I did years ago. Because maybe you're thinking or what the enemy tells you is, look, it's just too awful. That thing you did. The fallout is too much. The toll is too great. That thing that you did there can't be forgiven. It's a lie. He's the father of lies, and that's what he's been doing from the beginning, Jesus says, is lying. 
If he tells you that that thing can't be forgiven, you know. Jesus says, look, there's only one thing that cannot be forgiven. That is to refuse this offer that I'm giving to you myself in your place. Notice the last two words of verse two. And he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You guys see, besides the fact that if you're an unbeliever here, you're in there. Do you guys also see that that means there's enough righteousness in Jesus' sacrifice for the whole world, past, present, future? You guys understand what that means? That means included in his righteous sacrifice is, for instance, Saul, murderous Saul who became Paul and had sweet fellowship with him. That means included in this propitiation would be Peter, who denied him three times, kept talking real big and bad and bold, and then just flat out quit and denied Jesus three times. He's included in that propitiation. That means included in that propitiation, by the way, would be Judas... But he didn't receive it. That means included in that propitiation was that adulterous woman whom he rescued from stoning and said, go and sin no more. You hear what I'm saying? If the accuser tries to take you to court. Please understand, he says, not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. That's a, that's a lot of forgiveness. That's a lot of propitiation available to you. He's not going to come to you and say, oh, you know what? I just plumb ran out of propitiation. Yeah, I know I had it for Saul and Peter. I even had it for Judas. He didn't want it. But uh, here, you want some of his? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's not going to say, I just ran out. You guys understand what that means? There's nothing that you've done that cannot be forgiven unless you refuse his offer. So if the accuser tries to take you to court, if you will, just have him see your lawyer. Go to Jesus, your advocate with the Father. Honor him today by resting in the finished work that he's done for you. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for your word. And again, the promises of your word that it will not return to your void. You know every single person in this room, and you know our circumstances. You know our, the situations that we've gotten ourselves in, Lord, that we've allowed ourselves in. You know the hurts, Lord. You know all of it. Lord, please minister to your people, your sheep. You're the good shepherd. You know each one by name. You know our temperaments. Ask, Lord, that you would take these words and you'd minister the way you desire. And I pray now you'd, you'd help us to, to take some time, Lord, to apply your word, that we would not just be hearers only of your word, but we would be doers. For we know that's where the change comes in. I ask you, Lord, to just uh, please be with us in this, these next few minutes as we honor you and, and uh, do our best, Lord, to look for application in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.